This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this edition of the program, showdown between Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko and his Russian backers and the European Union. Did Belarus blink? Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. The VOA Newsroom reports that on Thursday, the G7 group of nations condemned what it called the Belarus government's orchestration of irregular migration across its borders. European countries accused Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko of pushing thousands of migrants, mostly from the Middle East, to cross the border illegally in retaliation for European Union sanctions, punishing Belarus for cracking down on pro-democracy protesters. The G7 said Thursday that Belarus is trying to deflect attention from its violations of international law and human rights. The statement expresses solidarity with Poland, as well as two other neighbors of Belarus, Lithuania and Latvia. According to the Washington Post reporter Anthony Fiola, the EU and the U.S. say that Lukashenko manufactured an artificial migrant crisis by granting tourist visas for asylum seekers from the Middle East, then pointing them toward EU borders. Belarus and Russian President Vladimir Putin have denied devising a plot to destabilize Europe, but evidence shows that Lukashenko has indeed weaponized migrants. Fiola says that Belarusian guards cut down Polish border fences for asylum seekers in a bid to use migrants as pawns in diplomatic blackmail. And Russia dispatched paratroopers to the Belarus border near Poland. However, it appears that Lukashenko might have blinked The New York Times reported that, quote, the hastily constructed migrant encampments at the main border crossing into Poland from Belarus were cleared by the Belarusian government on Thursday morning, removing for the moment a major flashpoint that had raised tensions across Europe and even risked clashes between NATO-backed Poland and Russian-backed Belarus, unquote. In addition to backing Lukashenko in his alleged blackmail attempt against the EU, Moscow is also ratcheting up tensions along the border with Ukraine. VOA's Jeff Seldon reports that Washington is keeping a close watch on Russian troop movements near the country's border with Ukraine, describing the activity as unusual. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told reporters in Washington that the current troop buildup is reminiscent of similar troop expansion in April, calling that buildup the biggest since Moscow's invasion of Crimea in 2014. Joining us to discuss Russian maneuvers designed to destabilize the West, we turn to two distinguished Russia and transatlantic experts. Will Pomerantz is deputy director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center, and that's a think tank here in Washington, and Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and that's a public policy group also based in Washington. So, Will Pomerantz, let me begin with you, and I'd like to remind you that you were both with us here in April when the uh, Russians were building up troops along Ukraine. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, Will, what is your reaction to Alexander Lukashenko's ploy to apparently weaponize Middle Eastern migrants who are dying, obviously, to escape from hardship and violence, to obtain asylum in Europe. What was he trying to achieve? I think he was trying to achieve what he did achieve, which was a crisis. And I don't think he anticipated the reaction from the West. I think that he anticipated that he could 
basically blackmail the West and basically use migrants to stop any sort of new sanctions against Belarus. So I think that was his primary goal, that there had been discussions about new sanctions on Belarus. He wanted to create a crisis so that the Europeans would take it more seriously. Unfortunately for Mr. Lukashenko, that crisis unraveled to a certain degree, and now he is trying to back down. So, Andrea, I'd like to get your take. And we all recall that Lukashenko is in power as a result of having rigged an election, which someone else won. So he was a subject of sanctions from Europe. He certainly did create great chaos on the border with Poland, with the migrants. But what else has he achieved and what is he, in fact, looking for beyond averting new sanctions? What do you think the EU is planning to do? Well, I agree both, Carol, with your introduction and what Will has said, that this was very much part of Lukashenko's confrontation with the EU. He was looking to punish the EU for the sanctions they opposed in the wake of the crackdown after his fraudulent 2020 election. But the one thing I want to highlight, because I agree with what Will said, is to remind listeners that while these events are playing out in Belarus, that Russia here, I think, also plays a role by backing the Lukashenko regime and basically enabling him to take on Europe in the way that he has. And as you laid out in your introduction, it's not just Belarus and Ukraine, but let's remember too that the Putin regime is squeezing Europe's gas supplies ahead of the winter so that Europe can't afford to oppose Russia without threatening its own heating. We see Russia also active in the Balkans, encouraging Serbian nationalism with Dodik, who's threatening to withdraw the Republika Srpska from national Bosnian institutions. He calculates, too, that he has the backing of Moscow. Russia has ended its diplomatic ties with NATO. So this is quite uh, an alarming picture. It's a multifaceted pressure campaign on Europe. And so in this case, I think that Belarus and Lukashenko is very much a part of this multifaceted campaign against Europe, where I think Putin is trying to intimidate Europe and the Europeans so that they come to calculate that they need to come to some deal with Russia to keep peace in their backyard. So again, I think it's really important to see this as part of this multifaceted campaign with the goal of pressuring Europeans and I think trying to convince the Europeans that they can't push back on Putin's aggression. Will Pomerantz, do you see this also as a multifaceted pressure campaign against Europe promulgated and instigated by Russia? How do you see Putin's role in all of this and what he's trying to accomplish? Well, I think Lukashenko wanted to try to get the attention of the Europeans, but then he dragged Putin into it, or Putin was willingly dragged into it. Nevertheless, it's hard to say who was leading the charge. I agree with Andrea that most likely it was Putin, and most likely it was Lukashenko at least had a blank check from Russians to engage in this very provocative action. But there was a little bit of pushback amongst the Russians and amongst the activities that Mr. Lukashenko has engaged in. Most notably, Lukashenko said he was going to cut off the gas. And Mr. Peskov, the spokesperson for Mr. Putin, immediately jumped in and said, no, Russia observes all its contracts. It has contracts to supply Europe with gas. And that, no, that the Belarusians would not stop the pipeline. So, again, I think it's a mixed bag for Russia when it has to rely on Lukashenko to kind of be the wedge that is dividing Russia and Europe. In the aftermath, Russia did say that 
Russia and Belarus were going to, again, expand and renegotiate the union treaty between the two countries. That's existed since 1999. But they said that in order to renegotiate this treaty, there were 28 areas of negotiation. And I can assure you that there are a lot of areas where they disagree. And since there are so many obstacles to these sides, I don't think that Putin is really kind of going to concede a lot to Mr. Lukashenko. And so I don't see that the union treaty will be expanded or revitalized. Indeed, it's been mainly a dormant organization for about 20 years. And I don't think that these events over the past two weeks will facilitate a desire for Russia to integrate further. Indeed, there are a variety of reasons that they don't want to subsidize Belarus going forward. And this will just kind of reinforce the fact that Lukashenko is a loose cannon. Andrea, back to you, notwithstanding your excellent observation that this is a multifaceted issue, Russia's hand is always there behind. But with respect to Belarus and this attempt to use migrants to rattle Europe, How do you think this will be resolved? Sanctions don't seem to have prevented Lukashenko from engaging in more chaos and malign activities for his rigging the election, for diverting, you know, a Ryanair jet from Athens to Minsk to detain a dissident. What can be done to try to bring Belarus back into some uh, democratic fold, if that's even possible, without him lashing out with these types of really cruel actions. Well, I think first and foremost, while the sanctions weren't able to deter Lukashenko from continuing with this manufactured migrant crisis, we have seen the European Union finally approve a new package of sanctions that are designed to disrupt the flow of migrants from the Middle Eastern countries into Belarus. So they recently announced sanctions on airlines, travel agents, and people involved in the illegal push of migrants. And I think to some degree that those efforts are bearing some fruit. So for example, we saw that the United Arab Emirates has curtailed passengers from several Middle Eastern countries from flying to Belarus. Turkish Airlines has also restricted flights to Belarus. So in this sense, you know, even the threat of those sanctions, the actual entities yet haven't been announced, but the very fact that the European Union was moving in this direction has helped to disrupt the flow of migrants. And so I would say that's positive. There's also a number of steps I would say that the European Union and the United States need to take in the near term to address the humanitarian situation. You know, as of right now, there is a need for greater humanitarian support for the refugees. And this is really important because currently the Lukashenko regime and its propaganda is looking to portray this crisis as the result of the European Union's refusal to abide by international law. So they're trying to spin this in a way to discredit the West. And so, A, we need to step up our efforts to treat these people humanely and B, to push back, I think, on Lukashenko and by association, Russia's disinformation narratives. Poland and Lithuania, we need to pressure them to allow journalists and human rights groups to get to the border. Even though it's diffusing, it's still very important that these groups are able to report on what's happening there. So far, they had been barred from the borders. 
So I think there's a number of things to do on the humanitarian front. And then, you know, just very briefly trying to move Belarus in a more positive democratic trajectory. It just underscores more than ever how important it is that we support Belarusian civil society, that we continue to highlight the Lukashenko regime's continued attacks on human rights and freedoms and international law. You know, there is a lot of Belarusians who are now outside of Belarus. The United States and Europe can help support these groups. So there is a lot that we can do uh, in this situation. Turning to you, Will Pomerantz, for your take on, you know, how the European Union can deal with Belarus, a very bad actor with regard to the rigging of the election, crackdown on civil society and Russia's backing of Belarus in this type of activity. And what about Poland? Obviously a member of the European Union, but not playing the most positive role. It's a bit of a outlier with regard to welcoming of migrants. So that has complicated things. We've obviously had a major upheaval in Belarus. And what we learned is that with Russia backing, Lukashenko has the power and the force in order to end the uprising and the potential revolution. So Belarus has never really been a democratic country. It has no history of being democratic. They basically had one election at the end of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mr. Lukashenko didn't seem as a favorite for the presidency, but he won. And he has been able to control the country ever since. So unless Russia decides that it would not back Belarus and prevent a color revolution, it is very difficult to see how things are going to change in Belarus. Although I do agree with Andrea that the important thing is to try to support civil society, try to support the opposition. I don't know when they're going to get another chance at an election. And I think that when they do have an election, Mr. Lukashenko will make sure that what happened previously does not happen again. But I think the evolution of Belarus and the failure to really even adapt a semblance of democracy is now a long tradition and will require that Belarus lose its primary backer in the future. And I don't see that Russia is in a position to sacrifice an ally or just simply ignore what would potentially be a disruptive color revolution in Belarus. We'll have more in just a moment, but first you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Will Pomerantz, Deputy Director of the Cannon Institute at the Wilson Center, from whom you just heard and Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. And we are discussing Belarus, Russia, and soon we will talk about Ukraine, the Russian buildup of troops. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener, Kamara Osmantayo from Freetown, Sierra Leone. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So Andrea Kendall-Taylor, speaking of Belarus as an important player for Russia to wield against the West, we must talk about Ukraine and we're seeing another Russian troop buildup. When we were at these microphones in last April, we discussed it and now here we are again. So what is going on? Well, I think what we're seeing is very concerning and clearly it's gotten the attention of the U.S. administration. We've seen very strong statements by 
Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. We've seen a flurry of diplomatic activity, CIA Director Bill Burns traveling to Moscow, several people from the Biden administration traveling to Europe to share with them their understanding of what's happening on the border. And I think to try to work towards a shared threat perception of what Russia is doing and possibly to build up consensus about what an appropriate response would look like. We talked in April when this buildup was happening, and I think in many ways what we see today is just a continuation of what we saw back then. You know, many of those troops that mobilized in April stayed in place, and Russia continues to, I think, build positions that, as I understand from Russian military experts, are positioning Russia to execute on a fairly sizable, significant military intervention in Ukraine should a political decision be made. So I think the pre-positioning of forces is extremely concerning. But when you couple that with the change that we've noted in Kremlin rhetoric about Ukraine, it adds to this picture of concern. President Putin published an op-ed earlier this year that basically called Ukraine a vassal state. Uh, it was followed by a piece in Commerçant by Dmitry Medvedev, who made similar claims. Speaking at the Valdai conference, President Putin has also seemingly changed his red lines in Ukraine. You know, historically, from the Kremlin's perspective, They've always said that Ukraine must remain outside of NATO. And now that seems to have changed with Putin saying that he views concerning any NATO infrastructure in the country. So when you pair the military movements with, I think, the very significant change in rhetoric towards Ukraine, it paints a very worrying picture. So, Will Pomerantz, we do have a very worrying picture. What is Vladimir Putin up to in Ukraine with this troop buildup? Well, I think Vladimir Putin wants to say to the West and to President Zelensky that you can do certain things. You can talk about alliances, you can talk about NATO and so forth, but Russia is still there. And Russia sees this as a red line and that Russia's concerns will need to be taken into account. Or if you ignore Russia's concerns, they reserve the right to protect their interests and their sovereignty as they see fit. So I think this is just a attempt to make sure that Russia is not forgotten. It's very hard to ignore Russia, but I think that it's just to make sure that Russia has capabilities. Russia has the reasons to make sure that Ukraine doesn't go into NATO, and it has a degree of force that it can put into play. What is also concerning is there are all these troops on the border, and it just takes a misperception, a mistake, and it can all just build up that much faster. So what I'm more concerned about is not that Putin can't be reasoned with or talked to, but that any sort of mistake, any sort of unintended consequences can lead to a major misunderstanding and a larger war that everyone would be into. Well, that's certainly an excellent point. So back to you, Andrea, to talk about the role of the United States here. Ukraine is critical to obviously U.S. and EU interests. It's a country that seems to appear to want to be more part of the West. And of course, that is the most aggravating thing to Putin's Russia. You know, how do we thread this needle? How can you, on the one hand, you know, mollify Russian concerns and at the same time, you know, allow for a sovereign country that may want to down the line align itself with the West, with Europe? 
I think I'm more concerned than Will is about what Putin's intentions in Ukraine might be. I hear from folks in Russia who talk about Putin kind of being, quote unquote, obsessed with this issue. Ukraine has always been in a very emotional issue for Putin. I think he is very much thinking about what his legacy is going to be. And I think when he looks at Ukraine, the current status quo is not moving favorably for Russia. And I think he calculates that there is likely to be no future Ukrainian leader who can deliver on Minsk or any kind of agreement that would be favorable to Russia. And when these diplomatic kind of political channels break down, what Russia has learned is that it then has to resort to military force in order to accomplish its objectives. Again, I don't think that a political decision has been made, but I do think it is a very concerning situation. So to get to your question, Carol, about what the United States should do, I mean, we have to be very active in trying to shape Putin's calculus. I think so far that's what we see this administration doing as I was talking about this flurry of diplomatic activity, sending folks to Moscow, sending people out to Europe, sending uh, our Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin out to Ukraine. Uh, we're doing military exercises in the Black Sea. So I think we are trying to signal U.S. support for Ukraine and its territorial integrity. And that's all very important. I think that the United States is going to have to clearly communicate to Putin what the costs of any sort of escalation would be and communicate that in advance so that he understands what the consequences would be. Unfortunately, I don't think I think sanctions alone are much of a deterrent for Putin when it comes to Ukraine. There is no other issue for Putin that is more important than Ukraine. And so this is really difficult. So, you know, we need to do our best to try to shape that calculus. I think we need to be thinking about what NATO's role in this should be. Putin has signaled that he won't accept NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. Do we accept that? Is that something that we as NATO allies accept? Or do we want NATO to play a more significant role in supporting Ukrainian capabilities, perhaps by creating a NATO defense fund or deterrence fund for Ukraine? So I think we need to be thinking through these things. It's a very sensitive time. And I think the one thing I've learned watching Russia is sometimes we can look at Putin and the Kremlin from the outside and say they would never do that. It doesn't make sense. You know, we that about Russia sending forces out of the former Soviet Union into Syria. Oh, they'll never do that. They've never done that. And yet they do it. And so it's not to be alarmist, but just to say that we need to be prepared for some of these worst case scenarios and be working now to prevent them. So Will Pomerantz, I'll give you the last word. Should the U.S. take some risks? Call the bluff of Putin because, as Andreas said, you know, Ukraine is very important and it doesn't look like they're going to stop it much. Putin's Russia. They have to understand the costs of escalation and what do you think those would be? And would Russia respond back down, so to speak, if faced with those costs? Well, again, Putin has not shown a tendency to back down in a variety of places and in a variety of areas. So I think it would be very hard, at least at the beginning, to kind of get some sort of agreement with Putin that he would not risk escalating the crisis. So I think that Putin has emphasized that he's about defending sovereignty, territorial integrity. He went to Sevastopol on Russian Unity Day and made a very provocative speech about the unity of Russia and how it can never be torn apart. And he decided that that was the place where he was going to emphasize the unity of the greater Russia. 
And Sevastopol, of course, is in Crimea, correct? Exactly. So that was a very provocative move to begin with. What the United States can do, I think the Biden administration decided at the beginning that when they decided to not sanction Russia and Western European companies for Nord Stream and to allow it to get completed, that they lost an opportunity there. When Biden talked about Ukraine's entry into NATO, he said that it wasn't going to happen anytime soon, and then said that Ukraine had to deal with the issue of corruption. And that's a long-term problem in Ukraine. And that was basically an indirect message that if you have to solve the question of corruption, it will be a long time before Ukraine gets fully integrated into the Western security system. That doesn't deter the United States from actually engaging with Ukrainian forces and so forth. But I think when President Biden decided that he wasn't going to sanction Nord Stream, that he wasn't going to advocate strongly for the admission of Ukraine into NATO, that he decided that that wasn't going to be a front burner issue for him and that he would try to reinforce our traditional allies as opposed to expanding NATO. I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guest, Will Pomerantz. He's deputy director of the Cannon Institute at the Wilson Center and Andrea Kendall Taylor, senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America. 